Welcome to Man Up, the podcast by men, about men, and for men who want to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Today's topic, honoring God in our marriage. Are you ready? Man up. Yes, sir! Welcome, welcome, my friends. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and this is Man Up, your podcast with all the information and encouragement that you need to be a better father, husband, leader, and follower of Jesus. We are a band of brothers. We are soldiers in arms. We are comrades. We fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, hand over hand, mile after mile, until each has helped the others attain the high calling of Jesus. And today, we're rejoining for part two of our interview with Brother Mark Broyles. Mark is a gospel preacher. He's a friend, someone that I look up to a lot. And he and his wife, Judy, do a tremendous work in the kingdom of God, helping the young and not so young understand the challenges of marriage. And we're going to continue our discussion on sex and marriage and how God's man should approach these things. And it's been a wonderful discussion so far. If you didn't hear part one, you're definitely going to want to check that out because there's a whole lot of blessings in that for you. But until we talk at the end of it, are you ready? Man up. This next question sounds like it might actually belong in the rapid fire section, but we're not quite there yet. You see brethren that are struggling in their marriages, and and maybe they don't even realize it. What are some indicators that you look for in marriages that you might, that might indicate to you that this person's marriage is in trouble, even if they don't realize it yet? I I think, I think there's different indicators for me. What's their level of involvement with, with other people as a couple? Are, are are you seeing that? Because sometimes you'll see couples who, who stop doing things with other couples. The, the lady may do stuff with the women, the man may do stuff with the men, but you're, you're not seeing a lot of couple interaction. And I think that is extremely beneficial to a marriage relationship is to share time with other couples who are seeking the, the same goal to live a godly life. I, I think some of the other things are harder to detect unless you're talking to them, but just little things that you'll hear people say, people will say, you know, I, I wish. Mark would do this, or I wish, you know, Mark would do, or I wish Judy. And so you may just listen to some of the conversations occasionally that they may, they may drop a little, a little hint that way. But I, I think the other things are harder to see. Are they, are they spending time in Bible study together? Or are they spending time, you know, praying things that are, that, that for a Christian, you're going to see deterioration in all phases of life because of that. But the most outward thing is how much individuality are you seeing as Mm -hmm. opposed to how much real couple time are you seeing? How do you hear them talking about each other? I told a couple that I'm counseling with the other day, I said, you know what, here's your goal for this week. I want you to say so many good things about your spouse in the presence of other people that you nauseate. So the, obviously I don't want them to nauseate somebody. But I want them to think in terms of, I should be talking about my wife, praising her. The, you know, the, the Proverbs 31 woman caused her husband to be praised. Well, people are talking about each other if they're truly deeply in love with that person. Right. You know, once one of the conversations that, that Lauren and I had early on, and, and, and one of the things that I told her is I would never be the guy that told the little women jokes, you know, that, you know. 
oh, she's always running up the credit card bills and you know, that's the little one yeah. before you kind of thing. One of the things that I had to realize being a preacher and you try to use examples from life to help people understand passages is I had to understand early on what kinds of things could be shared without causing her embarrassment and what things uh, couldn't. And, and, you know, just, and I always, and I, I don't know that I've done this perfectly. In fact, I know that I haven't, but I always try to portray her in the best light. And I never try to portray her in a negative light. Now that doesn't mean that I don't goof up and say something that I think is praise that she is embarrassed by, but, yeah. but it's never malicious. I will never talk about her in a negative light to anyone because I want people to see her as the way that I see her, which is, you know, she's a gift from God. And, and it really, I sort of extend that same, that same kind of principle to will that sometimes I'll, I'll share stories about times when, you know, he and I have had, you know, the few struggles that we've had to come to a consensus on something, but it's never about, nobody's ever going to walk away from a conversation thinking I married a ditz of a wife or, you know, my child is, is a discipline problem or anything negative about either one of them, because it's not how I feel about them. And that's not how, and I'm not going to portray them that way for laughs. And I think that a lot of times in order to bond with men, sometimes men lean away from their wives rather than trying to hold them up as this, this vessel deserving honor, understanding that it's, it's fragile, that what you think is funny could break her, could crush her. And if you don't, yeah, have, I think that's a great point. Yeah. I was just gonna say the couple I was talking to the other day that I gave that advice to had uh, made a vow in their marriage early on that they would not speak negatively about each other in the presence of anybody else. And they said they have lived up to that vow very effectively, not perfectly, but very effectively. They just mm -hmm. don't speak that way. So I asked them the question. I said, this is kind of like Christianity. If we're not careful, we get a negative view of things. In other words, that my, my goodness or righteousness is based on what I'm not doing. And that's a good, that's good. Th those are benefits. But I think righteousness and Christianity is based on what I am doing. So I'm not, I'm not a good Christian because I'm not committing adultery, because I'm not lying and that I'm not stealing. What am I doing? Right. And so I told this couple, I said, that's great that you're not speaking negatively. Take it one step further. Make sure you're speaking positively. Yes. Make sure you are making statements that are very positive about your spouse so that people are not only not hearing you detract from her, but they are hearing you praise her for the gift that she is to you. And I think for some guys, just getting them to stop the negative talk before they start the praise may be the first battle that. Oh, I would agree. Yeah. yeah I think you have the, the same way it is. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to start doing the things as a Christian that I should be doing unless I'm going to first stop doing the things that I shouldn't be doing. Right. I think that's just the nature of life. Get rid of the negative first, but it has to be replaced with that, that idea of the positive. So, so making sure uh, to build my wife up in the presence of others, which also is, is a great thing for giving her the sense of value and security that she's looking for. Now, I know you're up against a hard stop in a few minutes, so I'm going to ask you one more question before we jump into the rapid fire. Uh, it's a two-parter. Okay. 
but I want to talk about sex. There are different levels of desire. And generally speaking, for men, sex creates intimacy. At least that's what I've read and, and, and heard from almost everybody that I've interviewed. And there are, uh, for women, sex is born of intimacy. That the intimacy has to come before the enjoyment of the sexual union. And there seems to be a point where if you can't get there, then the marriages are going to struggle and a big point of contention is going to be the sexual relationship. So let, let me ask this really quickly before I jump into these next two sections of this question. But what is it that a man should be doing, could be doing, in his relationship with his wife to remove that barrier. And it's not, it's not saying so guys can have sex all the time, but what can we be doing to make the transition of, for us into intimacy and for the wives, because we already have an intimate connection, what can we be doing to make that transition easier to where, to where sex is what it's designed to be? It's, it's, it's enjoyable, it's loving, and most importantly, it's God honoring. It's helping us to be holy in our relationships yeah, and I do think there's there's a difference. It does go back to truly understanding the other person and understanding the goal. If the goal is true oneness and intimacy, the goal itself is not just the sexual union. Mm -hmm. If it's truly growing into who we're supposed to be growing into, and for for us, because I think that's the the idea of the spiritual nature of sexuality. We learn a lot about oneness through the sexual union. And I think God intended it to be that way. But so as a man, there was a, an old Everybody Loves Raymond episode that I, I remember seeing a part of where he's vacuuming the living room. And she says to him, you have never been sexier in your entire life, which, which is, seems like such an odd statement. But sometimes we as men do not realize the things that are detracting our wives from wanting or being able to take the time to invest in the physical relationship because she has things on her mind, other things she needs to do. And can I, can I help her? Can I do what I can to relieve the burden that is not allowing her to be emotionally invested at the moment? And so I tell, tell men, here's a case in point. One of the couples I was counseling with the other day, they, they were having this very discussion and it is a microcosm of the marriage. If you ask married couples sources of conflict, the sexual part of the marriage, it shows up in the top three sources of conflict every single time. So it is a, con it's a continual problem, but he had planned a big evening, wanted to be intimate with his wife, had all these, these plans that were even going to watch a movie, have some popcorn and stuff first, go through all of the, the date kind of thing. She was upstairs putting the kids to bed. There was a bunch of toys on the floor. She was trying to pick, he kept, he kept saying, I've got everything ready downstairs. You know, can you come downstairs? He's already anticipating the, the evening together. She couldn't get past all the toys on the floor and putting the three kids to bed. And he asked me, he said, look, I had put everything together, had done everything that I needed to do. He says, what else could I have done? To which I, I responded, I said, why didn't you tell your wife, go downstairs and relax for a few minutes. I'll put the kids to bed. I'll pick up all the toys. I'll be down in 15 minutes. And, and, and all of a sudden, she feels completely different emotionally. So mm -hmm. I think it's important for men to understand that whether you're talking about physically 
foreplay in that sense or emotional foreplay, both are necessary, that I need to take the time to get my wife emotionally invested so that she will be physically invested and I will then be emotionally fulfilled as well, physically and emotionally fulfilled. So I think husbands need to understand that the wife doesn't flip a switch like the man does. Uh, We're not viewing it the same way. The man could flip the switch on. Right. She typically does not flip a switch the same way. It, it, it is much more of a, this may be a terrible example, but I think in terms of instead of flipping a light switch, it, it's more like that dimmer dial that you have to kind of turn up. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, you, you're rotating that, you're turning that up slowly. And if I could understand that if I would invest the time to get her emotionally involved, it would pay huge benefits to me as well. And I don't do it just because it will provide huge benefits, but if I understand that it will, then I can take the time to give her what she needs because it will in turn give me what I need. Well, I think this has fundamentally led to a misunderstanding that is even sort of propagated in some of the teaching that I've heard that women don't enjoy sex. It's, it's not that they don't enjoy sex. It's that to get in the space where sex is enjoyable, you have to have realized exactly what you said earlier, that sex is connected to like the spaghetti. It's connected to the toys on the floor. It's connected to the struggle of, of keeping the kids in bed and getting them wrangled into their, their pajamas and things like that. And it's hard to go from, from the, from mother to, to loving, adoring, intimate, you know, physically wife in a heartbeat. And, and maybe even in an afternoon, depending on how bad, how big the struggle has been in some of those areas. So you kind of answered one of the questions that I didn't ask. Let me ask the second part of this. You, you answered the other question that I did ask, but it, it kind of covered both questions that I was going to ask. What should we be teaching our children about the sexual union? Or maybe children's the wrong word there. What should we be teaching our young men about the sexual union that we aren't presently teaching? I, I, I think... We need to be blatantly honest in regards to it. Make sure that we help them understand that there is nothing dirty about it at all. Right. That that it is wholesome. That it is pure. And when it's in the marriage bed, that that it is it is good. That it is pleasurable. That it is intended to be pleasurable. I think all of the truth needs to be told, and then helping them understand that the only way to ever truly appreciate that is the same way as to truly appreciate anything God provides for us is His way. Well, sure. we may think we can, we can have the total satisfaction outside of his way, but we can't for total satisfaction. We're going to need to do it his way. And so helping them to understand that I, I think is a big benefit, but being, being completely frank, we're, we're all afraid or ashamed to tell them that it is a wonderful thing. And so I think as you're teaching young people, no, it, it is God intended it to be one of the most pleasurable experiences that you can ever have in life. And he intended it to be enjoyed this way. Because I think the other thing is that helps me understand what a great God he is. Absolutely. And it's, and one of the really great things about sex, and it wasn't, it wasn't the case for Lauren and I, we had to adopt, but one of the great things about sex is it creates other unions that God that are God honoring, like the parent child relationship, that it's, it's the natural outcome of the sexual union is that we create something new 
that we love in an entirely different way. And one of the things that I've, I've been trying to teach the young people up here in Beaverton, Oregon, is that when you understand what Moses is writing and recording there at the end of Genesis 2, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, is that there is a nurturing and fulfillment that you find in the relationship with your with your father and mother. And it's the dearest relationship that you will ever have until the wife comes along. And once that union is made, then you find all of the love and all of the care and all of the nurturing that you got from your parents. And it is deepened in a way because now you have become one with another person. And when you put those pieces together, it is so important for them to be able to understand those things. Yeah, I, I would agree. Absolutely. And, and getting them, getting them to grasp the true concepts, I think will, will help tremendously. And I just, I just think we're sometimes afraid or ashamed to be as blatantly honest as we ought to be uh, about things that are very pure in the mind of God. All right. So let's get into the rapid fire sections. Cause I know that you've got a, a time commitment coming up here. And as I always say in this section, some of these questions are personal. There are events that I've seen at some point in my life or have been, I've been asked by other preachers how I would handle this. And I like to say the names are, are changed to protect the innocent and maybe sometimes the <laughs> foolish. So uh, sw- set your spiritual AR-15, if you would, to, to rapid fire. So a young man comes up to you and lays out a list of areas where he considers his wife to be deficient. And wants to know, and the audience can't see the air quote here, how to fix her. How do you help this young man? I mean, the first thing I'd have to do is, well, I I guess help him understand the concept of the responsibility that he has and the ability that he has. Because I, I can't fix somebody else, period. My, my wife or anybody else, uh, only they, if there's something that needs to be fixed, only they can fix themselves. So, and I think Ephesians five is all about that. You know, husbands, here's what you need to do to fix yourself. Wives, here's what you need to do to fix yourselves. So I can't fix her anyway. But secondly, I, I think that just reeks of selfishness. If what I'm thinking about is the faults of another person. Mm-hmm. When Jesus says, you know, get the, get the beam out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in someone else's eye, I think applies to marriage as well. It's so easy for me to focus on the other person because I think honestly, as a husband, and I'm not saying this is an absolute, but if I am truly everything God expects me to be as a husband, and, and are demonstrating that every day that I can possibly do, I think I'm going to see my wife's behavior is considerably different than it might be if I'm not doing mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And that's something that we need to take to heart that before you try to fix the other person, it, we need to understand that fixing and understanding are not the same thing. And before you try to yes. engage in fixing someone, you need to figure out what's contributing to the behavior that you may be bringing. And you need to have the conversation with them about what's going on because you may be completely misreading it. Or it may be, as I've seen in some instances, that you know one of the parties in marriage has gone totally off the rails 
and there does need to be some fixing, but it's not just the individual, it's the marriage that needs to be fixed. Yes. Yeah, no, I would, and I would agree with that. There's, we have to stop thinking in terms of the two of us individually anyway, in right. marriage, there's a new entity and the new entity, the union itself is going to take precedence over everything else. Right. So, but I do think it's important go ahead. to help him understand first, you better understand what you can and can't do anyway. Right. You can't change anybody. Right. You can, you might be able to help them see what they need to change, but you can't change anybody. That's absolutely correct. So a brother comes to you and says, he'd like to be married, but he just can't find a woman. He begins to tell you about all the things that he looks for in the, and again, you can't see the air quotes here, audience, perfect wife. What do you say to him? Well, my first thought is, you know, to get him a mirror so, so that he might be able to look at himself. I want, uh, he needs to make sure that he's not creating something that is unattainable from right. him in that standpoint. But, but secondly, I, I think here's what, here's what happens. We've, we've created a syndrome in, in our culture that makes people feel like there is a soulmate out there for them. It is all right. about finding the right person. I call that Disneyfication. <laughs> absolutely. And, and so we, we're searching for somebody that we think is going to meet all of those needs, that's going to, to, to check all of those boxes, when in fact that's never going to happen. It is a more a matter about of who am I going to become then who am I looking for? Other than obviously I'm looking for somebody that's driven toward God and, and has a godly mindset. And there's great value in that and necessity, I think, in that. But we, we had a couple that came to one of our marriage retreats, been married 25 years, never met until the day they got married. They were from India. They were assigned to marry somebody. They married them. It came with its struggles, but romance and the concept of who she is is not what's going to make a, a marriage. And, and you need to be sure that you fit what you're looking for as, and not just look for this thing that you desire at this present moment. So if you want a woman that is godly, you need to be, you need to put that first as the qualification that she's going to see in you, because that's going to attract that type of person. And the other, that even goes, I think sometimes with, with age that you'll have a guy that will try to get his career set and he'll get into his late thirties or forties, but he wants a, he wants a really young wife that's, that's down in her, in her twenties or something like that. You know, we need to be realistic with ourselves that your, your average 22 through 24 year old is not going to be attracted, generally speaking to a guy that's knocking on the deck, the door of 40, because there's not a shared life experience there. And there's yeah. no, there's not really any commonality. After, yeah, I, would, oh, I would agree with that. Oh, go ahead. I'm just going to say, I, I, because I truly believe any two people who will dedicate their lives completely to God can have the kind of union that God intends that they have. And, and so that, that needs to be the basis because any other expectations we have, we're going to find are going to let us down at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, everybody gets old eventually and we, and yep. we all get wrinkles and I still look at Lauren when she's you know, chopping up vegetables in the kitchen with her, you know, her hair kind of escaping the hair tie a little bit because she's homeschooled Will, she's run some errands and now she's, she is frantically trying to make dinner, which you know, I would have, have done if I just even 
hit my mind that that was something that we needed to do for the family. I just don't usually think about it until she's already doing it. And I look at her and I think, man, she is the most beautiful to me that she's ever been. And she doesn't understand that when I say it. And it's funny. I tell Judy the same thing. And I tell, I tell couples that, that someday she's going to be old and wrinkled. And she doesn't look the same as she did when we got married. That was 44 years ago. But she's more beautiful now than she was then. Now, you do have to be careful. I did make a statement in one of my lessons that I was presenting. said, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life, never make a pretty woman your wife. Yeah, don't quote Harry Belafonte there. (laughs) Yes. But it's not, I said, that's not what I did. But yeah, I, I think that's true. Just we set expectations that are too high and we set expectations that are wrong because they're not what's going to provide what we're looking for anyway. Right. So after a workshop, a young couple comes to you and tells you they just aren't compatible. You know, this was their last ditch effort to try to save their marriage. There's not been any adultery, but they fight all the time. They're thinking about getting a divorce. What are you going to say to them? And what do they need from their brethren? I think they, from their brethren, that they're going to need great encouragement and accountability because they made promises. And I want to at least remind them of the fact that when they got married, they made promises and that God takes the vows that we make very seriously. When, when Judy and I got married, which was, as I said, was 44 years ago, Melvin Curry, and I don't, I don't mind using his name because this is a great example, but Melvin Curry came up to me at our reception because he had watched Judy grow up. He knew their family from the time they were little. And Melvin came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder at our reception. He said, did you hear what you said in a very stern voice? And I thought, oh my goodness, I was a new Christian, you know? And so there were several that were concerned about Judy's choice in a mate because she had grown up very holy life. I had not. And I'm playing in my mind, all those things that I might have said at my reception. Did I use a word I shouldn't have because I used to use foul language. Did I say something I shouldn't have said? And I said, I'm sorry, brother Curry. I don't understand. And he said it again, did you hear what you said? And so I thought, was I gossiping about somebody? I played all that conversation again, couldn't figure it out. I I said, I am sorry, brother Curry. I still don't understand. He said, when you were up front and the preacher was asking you to make those promises, did you hear what you said? Because I did, and I will hold you accountable to them. And, And I thought there's, there's an avenue for brethren. We need to help hold each other accountable to the promises that we've made and the vows that we have taken. It, it, it's interesting because the registration book that most people have at their weddings used to be for a different reason. It wasn't signed as you went in so that people had record of your attendance. It was signed as you came out so that you could say, I witnessed what happened today. And it wasn't that you would have witnesses and people that would hold you accountable. So I think Christians need to help hold each other accountable. The couple needs to, here would be my advice to them. The church at Ephesus left its first love. Right. And and here is what the advice to them was. It it comes in three R's as I've done it, because, you know, I like to alliterate things for sermons. But the idea is that they needed to remember, repent, and redo, or or however you want to state that last one. But in other words, he's saying, you need to repent. In other words, you don't love each other. You're you're not compatible. Then you need to repent of that because God tells you, here's what you're supposed to be. So let's, let's call it what it is Mm -hmm. before we divorce. Uh, So repent of what you're doing, 
remember from before this couple was in love at one point they they had good things at one point remember what you did at the beginning is what he's telling them reflect back on when you fell in love with christ reflect back on when you fell in love with this your your spouse and, and then redo it the same the things you did at first he says do them again and i think that's the key we have to go in pursuit of our spouse like we did when we were engaged or dating we stop pursuing one another once we get married almost as if marriage is the goal mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to marriage is day one of the goal living a holy life together for the glory of god right well and that kind of segues into the next two examples i was going to get you to comment on a couple married you know just five years tells you how they started growing apart the minute the children came she finds out that he's been texting the girl at the office. In his words, nothing has happened. It's always work and a little friendly banter. You know, you can't see the air quotes there, guys. She's angry and says he only wants sex. That's all he thinks about and doesn't appreciate how stressful her life is. Can they be helped? And if so, what does each need? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think they can be helped. They, they do need to understand the nature he needs to understand. The, the nature of, uh, of what she is going to feel is a violation of their relationship. And I'm not saying uh, that he's committed biblical adultery in the sense of physical right. uh, adultery, but uh, there is a concept of emotional uh, adultery and how important it is to uh, grasp what happens when we are involved and we start sharing intimate information with somebody else or we talk about struggles or we're whatever, where there's an emotional, non-physical involvement becomes a, a path for the extramarital relationship or the committing of the adultery. Right. And, and so what happens with that is, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the book, Close Calls by Dave Carter. It's, it's nothing but illustrations and, and conversations that he has with with people who have come very close to committing adultery, but didn't actually commit adultery. And he talks about vulnerability. He says, when we're vulnerable, we're emotionally run down, our defenses are run down, our perspective on things is clouded. We're not able to make judgment based on truth and everything is seen through an emotional filter. Right. Pain is intensified. Therefore, the pursuit of the relief of pain is also intensified. When you are vulnerable, a situation that might otherwise be made, that might otherwise be safe may now be unsafe. And I think that vulnerability happens when a couple feels burnout, when a couple feels stress and tension from children. And so you start putting yourself in that position. So I think a couple like that can be helped, but I do think that they need to, they do need to understand how critically important that it is for him to recognize the danger zone that he is in. And for him to take into account what she has said, because most men don't want only sex and she would probably understand legitimately that that was not the only thing he wanted. Right. But one of the quotes we use with a lot of our counseling, a lot of our studies with couples is perception is reality. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you think about it. If my wife thinks that that is the only thing I'm thinking about, then I'm going to have to deal with that in right. order to get past that. And I think I need to accept the fact that that is her perception. 
something is causing that perception. And, and so how do I get out of that? And so it, it's going to require sitting down and being honest and open about those discussions. She's going to have to say, this is what I feel. He's going to have to say, I'm sorry that I have done anything to make you feel that way. That's not what I'm trying to do. Whatever the case is, they, they have to have the conversations that allow them to come back to one another. And one of the things that is a byproduct of, of having children is that for most women, their image of their body changes. I mean, their, their, their breasts are not for the enjoyment of their husband. They're for the nursing of their children. And, and, it, and it flips a switch in their head. You know, they, there's stretch marks where there weren't stretch marks. There's, there, you know, clothes don't fit the same way. And people in the congregation, when everybody's clothed and dressed up and looking happy, aren't going to necessarily see that the way that a husband will see that. And, you know, you have to get back into the mode of, of wooing each other. That, that you have, you, you're in a brand new phase of life once you have children. But that doesn't mean that you don't date your wife. It doesn't mean that you don't tell your husband how much you need him. It means that you have to be even more intentional about communicating those things. Because, and if you are having those outside influences that can lead to those extramarital affairs, that, that connection with somebody else, while it is not the biblical definition of adultery, Jesus tells us that the man who lusts after a woman has already begun to commit adultery in his heart. And you need to realize that's a danger zone. That, that's it. When you're taking the problems with your wife to someone other than your wife, particularly someone of the opposite sex, that's a danger zone. And Well, I was just going to say, there was a, a project done from 1990 to 2005 called School Children and Their Families Project. Institute of Human Development did this. 92% of these families, this is a study done over 15 years as these kids are growing up. 92% described a gradual increase in conflict after having children. Mm -hmm. So there's automatically additional tension in a family because children come into it. By the time their babies were 18 months old, then uh, almost one in four couples indicated that their marriage was in some level of distress. That their, their children automatically bring a cumulative erosion of satisfaction over time. And that is because we've added relationships. Yeah. When a husband and wife are in a marriage by themselves, there, there are two relationships, husband to wife, wife to husband. When you have one child, it goes to six relationships. Two children, there's 12 relationships. Three children, there's eight or 24 relationships in a, or 20 relationships in a marriage. And so I'm saying when you look at relationships, every one to the other, right. but that automatically creates tension that, that exists. And I think here's what's important for both to understand. Marriage is still top priority, not the children. One, one of the quotes we have is, is a, a writer who said, couples should make children the center of the home. After all, a marriage may not last, they say, but you're a parent forever. That is exactly the opposite of what God would say. Yeah. God would say the marriage has to take priority and precedence, not the children, because the marriage is forever. It's the only earthly relationship that's intended to last forever. 
And I think parents need to understand what are we raising our children for? Right. We're raising them to send them out in the world. But while we have them, they are what we would call budget busters. They, they <laughs> bust your time budget. Uh, I'm saying it in every sense of the word. Yeah. You get lack of quality time because and a lack of intimacy that would have existed before because children require a certain amount of time. And so we told, I always tell couples, you may not always be able to check out, but you can always check in. Am I, am I taking the time to make the call, to, to send a text to my wife, to let her know how much I love her, for her to do the same for me? How, what am I doing? Because sometimes I can't get away from the kids, but I can always check in, you know, kind of like the Stevie wonder. I just called to say, I love you. Yes. I, you know, I just called to say, I care. But secondly, they bust the emotional budget as well. Energy levels are completely drained when we have kids. And mm -hmm. so connection becomes critical. Just like you're saying, you have to continue to pursue. You have to continue to date. You have to continue to, to keep in, in mind the things that are going to keep us vibrant together. Mm -hmm. And then of course, I would tell you, here's the other key for me that they're, they're a financial budget buster as well. And if we're not careful. We allow that to become more of an issue than it should. And right. so I think parents need to achieve balance. Every parent needs to understand my kid does not have to play three sports, two musical instruments, be involved in gymnastics and choir. If you get your kids involved and overcommitted, you are now overcommitted. Right. Your spouse is going to suffer. Well, and they're also going to suffer because your children are going to be stressed out too, because that overcommitment affects them just the same way it does us, and maybe more so. Yeah, absolutely. So a but, couple but of mirrors. Absolutely. Go ahead. I was just going to say, absolutely a key that they prioritize the marriage first, because if not, uh, that's how you end up with that empty nest problem that I think you're probably going to next. Exactly. So a couple married 25 years. I mean, the whole marriage has been about the kids. You know, Lauren and I won't be won't be child-free until at least 35 years of marriage. But a couple married 25 years doesn't know how to relate to one another now that the kids have left the nest. What advice do you give the man to bring back that spark, that connection? I, 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 tell, I tell couples, here's a great thing to do, even before you get to that point, but it will help you even at that point. Figure out your love story and tell your kids frequently your love story. You know, how you met, you know, how you met her, how you met him, how you fell in love and, and those kind of things. Because if you can keep at least some level of fresh, and even if you didn't, I would say start over with the love story. In other words, now the kids are gone. We don't know how to relate. You know what? Let's relate like we did in the beginning. I want to mm -hmm. fall in love with you all over again. I've lost a lot of that and I realize I've lost a lot of that. So how do I get back to that? And so I'm counseling with a couple right now. I said, go back and list because they're struggling. And I said, go back and list your three favorite dates, each of you individually, and then share them with each other and talk about that. Your free, three favorite dates while you were dating and, and talk about that. Go back and talk about the favorite vacation you ever had. And, and so if we start thinking in terms of, you know what, there were, there were good times there were good yeah. relational times, then I think we can get back in that direction. So I think they have to do whatever's necessary to get back in that pursuit uh, again. Uh, yeah. That whole idea of 
I'm chasing my spouse. I want to uh, to truly cling to them. Well, and I think one of the things that, you know, if the spark is gone, one of the things that's happened is, is if you don't have that desire for your spouse, then you've, you've lost something really significant there and you do have to chase them again. You got to learn them all over again and having those conversations, even, even having frank conversations about sex and, and how you relate to one another physically in the bedroom. Those are important conversations to have. And each needs to be telling the other about those kinds of things. What were your favorite dates? What were your favorite vacations? What, you know, what were the times when we connected that were the most enjoyable to you? And and what you may find when you revisit those things is what you really want to do is go back to Disney World without the kids and just experience it (laughs) as a couple. I've known lots of couples that have done that. And doing those kinds of things made the, the story after their children one that, you know, hopefully their children would emulate in their own lives. So what can churches, no, that, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, I think that, I think that's a great point is just to, to get that focus and have those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. So what can churches be doing better to prepare our people in, and you highlighted something the other day in a conversation we were having about the difference between a contract and a covenant. What can churches be doing to better prepare our people for the covenant of I, I think first off, I mean, spending more time talking about covenant because that's a foreign concept to our culture. You know, that was, that was very common biblically in Genesis 15, when God entered into a covenant with Abram and then in 17, when Abram had his entrance into that covenant with circumcision with God, I think spending more time because we, we, we just associate that contract and covenant are very similar or almost the same and, and they're drastically different. And so helping Mm -hmm. people understand the concept of a biblical covenant, which is a promise, not an agreement. And if we could understand, I'm not entering into a marriage agreement. We are two separate people who are both making vows or promises to each other. And that's a covenant that my promises are not based on whether or not she fulfills hers and vice versa. So understanding the covenant is a promise, not an agreement is a big start and understanding the basis of them. The reason that is true and why a covenant is so much more binding is because a covenant is based on trust. A contract is based on mistrust. And so if I'm entering into an agreement or a contract, it is already acknowledging that I'm entering into this contract with somebody because we don't necessarily believe that the other person is going to carry through. Right. So we've started off on the negative side and, and that's why people look for loopholes. How can I get out of this agreement that I have entered into this contract? I can't get out of a promise. Deuteronomy 23 says, God tells me nobody made you make it. Yeah. It was a voluntary promise. If nobody made you make it, you better understand God says you better keep it because it came out of your lips voluntarily and you need to keep that promise. You know, and I signed, I don't know, hundred papers on my mortgage on my house, you know, which is pretty typical, but one was more important than all the rest. They make you sign a promissory note, which is nothing but saying, I promise that I'm going to pay this the way that all this paperwork says I'm going to pay this. And right. as a Christian, you couldn't have a more binding document than that. Right. And the, I liked how you talked about the promise being exclusive. I mean, it, it's. 
God made the promise to Abraham, and then Abraham turned around several years later and, and made the promise to God. That The promise is not the expectation of the other person. It's the expectation we place upon ourselves to live up to it. And I think when we understand that, then it sort of takes us back to that first question I asked you in the rapid fire. We stop trying to fix the other person, and we start looking at what we can be doing to fix ourselves to where maybe they can become the person that we were hoping that they would be because we've we've given them license to be vulnerable because we're showing them that we're trustworthy in the things that that we've promised to them absolutely and i would uh, i always assign couples when i'm doing premarital studies when they're looking at ephesians 5 i say do me a favor next week i want you to bring back all the if then clauses in ephesians 5 verse 23 <laughs> i love it all right, so, brother. I know you're up against a hard stop, and we could keep this conversation going. I'm going to have you back on for some other episodes that I've got some ideas on, but but I appreciate you giving us your time today. And I know the audience has benefited greatly from this, and and we'll hopefully listen to this episode more than once because there was a lot of good information in there. A lot of the the episodes we do are emotional. They're they're the emotional aspect of being a man, but there was a lot of good information for navigating marriages that Mark gave you today. So Mark, we appreciate you being here. And I know a number of you have asked about how you could support the program. I don't have a Patreon or anything like that. Maybe in the future, I'll get something like that together, but you know, check out the Biblically Speaking store. That's the YouTube program that I do. There's Man Up merchandise there if you really feel like you want to contribute to the show. But the number one way that you can help me is you can like and subscribe to the podcast, and you can share it so that more people can find it and can benefit from it. Because the more people find it, the more it makes sense to keep doing it. And our audience is growing, and Lord willing, it will continue to do so. Again, Mark, thank you for being here. And Well, thank you for having me, Jared. Extremely important topic. Glad to be able to share in it, and, and certainly hope the Lord was able to use us to help somebody. All right. Well, for all of us here at Man Up, from me and from my guests, as always, we say, have a good day, God bless, and man up. Dismissed!